Turn in the Word of God this morning to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Beautiful singing this morning. Such an encouragement to be able to sing to the Lord and rejoice in His mercies. Genesis chapter 11. We are in the middle of a short-ish topical series looking at the various individuals that we find in Scripture, and we gave an introduction to the overarching theme that we have given to this series, Lives Well Lived, and then we looked at the life of Enoch, and now we come to the life of Abraham. So, I trust the Lord will give us the help we need as we look at this tremendous character. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to read where we are introduced to Abraham in the record given to us in Genesis from verse 27, reading through chapter 12. Genesis chapter 11, let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai as wife, and Lot as brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, Onto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 7, trusting the Lord to bless his word. Let's, let's still our hearts. Let's look for the Lord's help this morning as we consider his word together. Father, we are so thankful that we have a Savior, Jesus, who leads us all the way. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we are not left alone, that Jesus is with us all of the way. Let thy people be aware of that this morning. May that be impressed upon their hearts. And as we consider this life well lived, we pray for the help of the Spirit. Oh, how we ask for the Holy Ghost to fall on those that hear the Word, and to give the understanding necessary to the preacher. Lord, take us from merely going through our meditation and study. Let this be a word and season that changes lives, even saves those that are without Christ. God, do Thy mighty work. Extend Thy kingdom, Lord. May we know Thy presence. May we sense the nearness of Jesus, who stands amidst the candlesticks, and blesses his people. Hear us then. Come in mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Trying to give an idea of Abraham's life in one sermon is certainly a test of one's summarization skills, and I'm not so sure I'll be able to fulfill the task in any meaningful way, but I will do my best. He is a central character. Many chapters, even in this book of Genesis, 
uh, are, are helping us to see his life, understand how God was leading him and what God was doing through him, as well as other portions in the Word of God. And even in the New Testament, we find him as a, a central character, especially in the book of Romans and Galatians. He's one of the most well-known men that has ever lived. The Jews obviously recognize his significance, the Muslims as well, and Christians also. We all acknowledge him as a significant character. However, few see Abraham as one that points to Christ, but he does. Abraham points to Christ, and I, it isn't, isn't really my, my focus, but as we've been endeavoring, we want to just draw some reflections in relation to this. For example, first of all, Abraham's life with God reflected the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in that he moved around and had no permanent home. So it was with Christ who said, The foxes of holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Matthew 8, 20. So it was with Abraham. By the time you get to the end of his life, the only piece of property he owns is where he buries his wife. Second, Abraham entered into covenant with God that would give his posterity a kingdom, just as Christ entered into covenant with the Father to give his people a kingdom as well. I don't have time to turn to Luke chapter 22, but it's a very significant verse that you find in verse 29 of Luke 22, where Jesus says, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me. And the word translated appoint or appointed there may also be rendered, rendered make a covenant or enter into a covenant. And Christ there is reflecting upon the fact that he is covenanting to his people a kingdom, just as the Father had covenanted to him. Third, Abraham was told that he would be a father of many nations. And as such, he points to Christ, who is the father of all that believe across every nation under the sun. These are just some of the ways in which Abraham points to Jesus Christ. There are many more. And so I say it's hard to overstate the significance of this man. The record of his experiences with God have continually been a source of encouragement to the people of God throughout the ages. When you come to the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, Paul actually uses him to state how it is that a man is justified by faith alone. There are many aspects of his life that we cannot cover today, but we will do our best to cover it in an edifying fashion, I trust. One of the most remarkable titles given to Abraham is recorded in James 2.23, that he is the friend of God. The friend of God. What a title. That's a good thing to want to be known as, isn't it? The friend of God. How was it that he proved himself to be the friend of God? Well, of course, he, he knew God savingly, but he proved himself to know God and be the friend of God, just as Jesus taught us in John 15, 14, Ye are my friends, if ye do, whatsoever I command you. So Abraham, as the friend of God, clearly then was obedient. He was obedient to God. And this is then how to have a life well lived. This to be the friend of God. And so this morning we're considering Abraham, he who was the friend of God. Abraham, he who was the friend of God. A number of things to note here. First of all, his deliverance. His deliverance. He grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, as far as we are aware. And he lived as an idolater. He wasn't there as a believer originally. He was an idolater. He worshipped idols like the heathens. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, and you'll need to follow in your Bible here, beloved. I have a lot to get through. There are many verses. If you can flip to them and follow along, that will help. But certainly pay attention here as we build the scene of what Scripture tells us about this man. In Joshua 24, verse 2, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. They all did. They all were serving other gods. And so Stephen then tells us of the, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen tells us of the opening, in the opening words of his sermon in Acts 7, 
that something happened in Abraham's life. Something occurred to change this practice of idolatry to serve the living and true God when he says that the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God appeared to him. I don't know what that looked like, a theophany of sorts, some kind of revelation of God to his heart, some appearance of the Lord to him as would happen on subsequent occasions. But this is his conversion. This is his, his salvation. God steps into his life just as he must step into every person's life. We are not conceived with an understanding of God. We are not conceived right with God. We are not conceived in the light. We are conceived in darkness and sin. And there must be a miracle that takes place in each one of our lives. Has that miracle taken place in your life? Has God appeared to you in a saving fashion that has radically altered the course of your living? The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11 Verse 8 tells us that by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And so we're told that faith begins at that juncture. Faith commences in Abraham's life when God appears to him and calls him. And we have read of that call in chapter 12. Genesis 12 and the opening verses tell us that the Lord had said unto Abram, this is a a reflection upon what had occurred on that occasion when God had come to him while he was still in his father's country. God had spoken to his heart, revealed himself, and he obeyed. So he is delivered. He is delivered. And the evidence of his deliverance is in the change of his whole life. His whole life changes. It changes where he lives. It changes how he lives. It changes his whole approach. It changes his worship. He begins to set up altars unto God. There are a number of altars through his life that he will erect and worship to the living God rather than to the idols of his fathers. When a man is truly converted, he can no longer travel the old path he was on. The salvation of God brings in a radical change. Beloved, let us never lose sight of that. Let us never diminish the reality of that. If you be in Christ, you are a new creature. All things pass away. I mean, what, what does language mean? If language like that does not expose to us the reality that to be in Christ makes a difference in the life. We don't get to profess faith and continue on our own way, living according to our own standards. Abraham's life was transformed. He was not in the beginning, a friend of God. But he becomes a friend of God. The old companions and Ur the Kalis have to be left. And so many things that were not told or detailed, these things have to be left. As he lives a life, begins a life of obedience to God. This deliverance then, if we, if we are to be like Abraham, if we are to be the friend of God as he was, we have to recognize that implied in the language that he was a friend of God, tells us that he is not friends with certain other segments of society. It's interesting that in the same epistle, James, in chapter 2, where he says that he was the friend of God, it's in that same, chap same book, rather, chapter 4, verse 4, where he warns us that if we are the friends of the world, if we have friendship with the world, we are the enemies of God. So Abraham was the friend of God. And you see then a, a sense of contrast right there that if I am a friend of God, by implication I should understand that I am no longer a friend of the world. In fact, James says in that text that if you're the friend of the world, you're the enemy of God, you're an adulterer, an adulteress before God. Your profession to be loyal to God is conflicted by the fact you live as a friend of the world. Since Abraham then was a worshiper of false gods and God saves him and changes him, when Paul is dealing with this radical change, the doctrine of justification, he refers to two characters. One is Abraham, the other is David. David is that individual that is helpful for the Jew to understand how they must be saved. 
Because a Jew might look at the Gentile and say, well, I'm not a Gentile. My approach unto God is different. Paul argues in Romans chapter 4, no, no, you're justified by faith. That's true of the, Gen- of the Jew, but it's also true of the Gentile. Abraham becomes that one that the Gentiles can relate to because he was called as a heathen, as an idolater, before there was ever an Israel, before there was a covenant made with Abraham. He is called out by God. So turn there for a moment to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We are given further insight into the deliverance that occurs in this man's life. Romans chapter 4, we'll read from verse 1. Again, you really need to be following the logical argument of the apostle. He has presented the fact that the entire world is separated from God, guilty before God. He has spent time arguing that to be true of the Jew, arguing that to be true of the Gentile. So all are condemned. And so in chapter 4, as he begins to, well, he's already touched on the matter of justification. He continues then in this vein of how is it that a man is justified. Romans 4 verse 1, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? What did he discover? What did he learn about justification? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath were off to glory, but not before God. And what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. I want to just note a few things here very quickly. First, in this text we learn his deliverance was received by faith alone. Verse 3, Abraham believed God. He believed God. That's an act of faith. That's an expression of faith. And this is part of his justification. This is the the conduit by which he is made right before God. It is not before works, as we shall see. His deliverance is received by faith. Now, do you need deliverance this morning? Do you? Do you need deliverance? When I talk about deliverance, I'm not talking about out of some financial uh, duress or health matter or something else practically. I'm talking about the greatest problem every man faces, that is his inherent sinfulness before God. How can you get deliverance from your corruption? By faith. By faith in Christ. Abraham believed God. His deliverance was received by faith alone. Secondly, his deliverance was by grace. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if he had found his justification before God by what he did, then it's no longer grace. But this is the point that Paul is arguing, that the salvation that the sinner enjoys is graciously given. And since it must be graciously given, and is indeed graciously given, it is apart from works. No works are added. No works are contributed. Abraham believed God. That faith, that belief in God, that belief in the true God and what God had said concerning what to rest in and believe that He would provide for salvation, that message that was communicated to Abraham, that, that is the essence of it. It is believing God. What He has said is the means of deliverance. And the means of deliverance is outside of ourselves. It's not in ourselves, nor is it in the church or any other institution. It's not in Israel. It's not in a pastor or priest. It's not in anyone else but in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And to this Abraham looked. Abraham believed. Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day. And he saw it and was glad. There you have him resting, Jesus says in John chapter 8. He is resting in Christ. His gladness, his deliverance is in seeing Christ and what Christ would do for him. So his deliverance is by grace. It's completely apart from works. Now, did he do things that evidenced his faith? Absolutely. And we're going to see some of the mighty trials that he endured and went through, but his deliverance was apart from those things. His deliverance was entirely gracious. 
Thirdly, his deliverance led to an imputation of righteousness. That's what verse 3 goes on to say. He believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God imputes to him, counts to him, credits to him righteousness. This is what the sinner needs. This goes back. This, this fills in some of the gaps of what Paul is arguing right from Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the righteousness of God. And he, he speaks concerning a righteousness that is not God's inherent righteousness, but a righteousness that is fulfilled in the person of His Son. That the demands of righteousness are not that we become exactly like God ourselves, but credited to us isn't just God-likeness in some arbitrary fashion, but it is actually the Son of God made flesh, obeying the law fully, and that righteousness that He lives then is credited to us. He is a substitute for us. And what is counted to us, and this is what makes the Christian, this is what gives joy. We sang of it. We sang of Christ my righteousness. He is Jehovah, said Kenyu. He is the one that gives us a righteousness before the living God. And men and women here this morning, let us never depart, let us never, never diminish or lessen the significance of this central truth. Jesus Christ is righteousness to the believing sinner. You come in here this morning in your sin, in your unbelief, what hope have you? You decide at the beginning of the new year you're going to turn over a new leaf. You're going to leave the past behind. You're going to give up your old ways and begin a new life of obedience to God. What about the past? God doesn't just look at that and say, okay, because you made a vow, you're going to turn over a new leaf that the past now is, is, is I'm just going to overlook that. That's not how it works. You don't get to come before the judge having committed a crime, and say, well, judge, between the time that I committed the crime and me standing before you today, I have turned over a new leaf. It won't wash. It will not diminish. It won't cause him to just, oh, well, that's good to know. Off you go, back into society. Set free, regardless of what you've done. That's not how it works. And the same before the judge of all the earth. That sin must be dealt with, paid in full. Jesus Christ is the one who pays for that on the cross. But I need a positive reflection before God. I need something substantial. I need the righteousness that pleases God. I need to prove to Him that I have obeyed His law in full. And the absence of my sin is not a positive reflection of obedience. It's just the absence of that which would condemn Jesus Christ, by His life, gives to me that positive righteousness that makes me acceptable before God. This is what Paul is arguing. This is how old Abraham was saved. He believed. This is his deliverance. And it's your deliverance too. Secondly, his direction. His direction. Go back to Genesis Chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. We turn to the narrative here. We see his direction. We're told in verse 1 of Genesis 12, The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Get away, get out of there. Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So we're told here of the initial call. He is called out of God, called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He remembers that while he's in Haran. Haran is the midway point. It's not Ur, he's come out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's come as far as Haran, and he remembers that he has still this call, and so he continues on his journey. But think back to that initial call. Think back. He, here he is, multiple generations, living in Ur of the Chaldees. This is home. This is what's familiar. This is, this is where his family is from. This is all that he has known. And so, to receive such a call is a huge challenge. Leave family. Leave home. Go to a place of uncertainty where you have no connections. You're not known. That is a challenge indeed. 
But in the call, there is also encouragement for him. There is, which no doubt helped him to obey the call. We are told at the end of chapter 11, verse 30, Sarai was barren. She had no child. And in the call is the encouragement that God is going to make of him a great nation. Now he's getting an indication of future prosperity, of God being pleased to, to bless him with children. And so this is, this is prompting him, no doubt, encouraging him at the prospect of what lies ahead. Obey God. Obey God and see how these things will come to pass. And for the most part, Abraham was a man of resolute obedience. He was a friend of God. He obeyed God. Over and over again, we see the mighty indications of his obedience. But he didn't always. <laughs> he did not always. And we find ourselves right here we are a people needing direction, and we don't always, we don't always, in the course of our lives, go according to His will. And there's just two things here we can see in relation to His direction that are negative. First, He stopped when He ought to go. He stopped when He ought to go. He obeys initially, so He receives this call he shares it with his father. He shares it with the rest of the family. The father gets on board. They all begin their journey towards where God had called them to be. But he halts in Haran. We're told that again, the end of chapter 11, the last part of verse 31. They went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. That's not the way it should read, but that is how it reads, because that's what happened. He halts. Was he hindered by his father? Perhaps. It was not until his father died that he progresses in his obedience, that he goes on to do what God has called him to do. And so there's striking application there, striking. God had called Abram, he had not called his father, and his father goes with him, but his father is, is kind of dictating. You know, it's a patriarchal age, the father's dictating, controlling saying what things ought to be and do, and so on and so forth. He's, he's going the way he thinks, and so they come to Haran, and, and, and as far as his father is concerned, let's just set up camp here. But according to the narrative, they, they, they stay long enough that they actually grow in their numbers there. You see that in chapter 12, verse 5. They gathered all their substance when they eventually moved from there, the souls that they had gotten in Haran, so there's been growth, there's been a multiplication that has taken there. Therefore, they have been there for a significant period of time. And God has to remove his father in order for Abraham to go forward in obedience to God. Something had to die in Abraham's life before he could go forward with God. That's sometimes how it is, child of God. The things that hinder us from going the direction that God has called us to go, sometimes we just can't carry them. We can't take them, we can't go with them where we want to go. I mean, heaven's like that, isn't it? Not that the fileth will enter in. We don't get to carry all our, our unbelief. You don't get to carry your unbelief into heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you do not get to carry that unbelief into the presence of God. You don't. The way is straight, it is narrow. There are things that must be left behind. There are things that must die. And in fact, you know, Abraham has to spend all this time in Haran not hearing from God. If I'm reading this correctly, he is not hearing from God. He does not hear from God until he finally gets up and goes into the land of Canaan. And we're told then in verse 6 and 7 of him moving on. He's in Canaan now. And verse 7 says, The Lord appeared unto Abram. That's the second appearance. That's the second appearance. What you have in, don't miss it now because it begins in chapter 11, but what you have in chapter 12 is the initial call. And so he received this call. God speaks to Abraham. And then he never hears from God again until he's finally there where he needed to be. Ah. 
The silence of God. It's a frightful thing. How can you know what way to go in your life if God is silent to you? How? How can any of us know what is the right direction with all the plethora of decisions that come our way? Should I do this course? Should I take this job? Should I live in this place? Should I move or not move? Should I date this person? Should I not? All all the decisions... And sometimes we can spend years, yes, years, stagnant. We're not going forward. We're not hearing from God. We actually have to think back and remember what it is that God has called us to in the first place and fulfill that in obedience to Him. Disobedience breaks the sense of friendship. If you're going to be the friend of God, you can't disobey God. Abraham, the friend of God, had to learn that this friendship requires obedience. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So Abraham spends this years, he hasn't obeyed God. Once his father dies, once... Once what was getting in the way, once that which was barricading the path is removed by God, Abraham then remembers. It would have been a whole lot better if he had managed to persuade his father that he has to go, or if he had even come to a point where he said, you know what, Dad, I I can't stay here. God has called me. You either come with me or you stay here, but I must go forward. God has to take the obstacle out of the way. So he stopped when he ought to go. But also, he went when he ought to stay. He went when he ought to stay. Chapter 12 again, verse 10 There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And you see what happens. He begins to say that his wife is actually a sister, again trying to preserve his own life. Gets all pragmatic. I see he's he's not living, he's not living according to faith. Of course, famine doesn't strike overnight. It's not like one day you're fine, next day there's a famine and things are distress, in distress. It's kind of a gradual thing. It's a protracted season of difficulty. And in protracted seasons of difficulty, it's even more important that we understand that we walk by faith, not by sight. It is those protracted seasons of difficulty, it's the ones that don't seem to let up where we need most of all to keep our eyes on Christ. Now, we always must keep our eyes on Christ, but it's the protracted pressure, it's that pressure over time that just just brings us to a boiling point where we can no longer stand it. And we break. That's what famine does. Protracted seasons of difficulty test our resolve to walk by faith, not by sight. And as I have told you before, we must learn to make decisions in faith, not frustration. Always trusting God rather than responding reactively to the circumstances, frustrated by what's going on, and doing our best to analyze the circumstances as we see them. Make decisions in faith, not frustration. So here he is in in Egypt. He shouldn't have been there, beloved. He should have stayed where he was in Canaan. God would have taken care of him. Just as he took care of Boaz when there was a famine in Bethlehem. And Boaz stayed and God took care of him and he prospered. He should have stayed. 
So he needed to get back where he ought to have been. Genesis 13, verses 3 and 4. You see the opening verses of chapter 13. He went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and so on. Verse 3, he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Yes, where he was in chapter 12, verse 7, is where he needed to get back to. That's where he should have stayed. But having not stayed there, then you have to get back there. He had to do as the Ephesian believers needed to understand. He had left his first love and he needed to get back. And just to underscore it, he had not lost his first love because you don't lose your first love. You don't. When you lose something, you don't know where you've left it. You don't know where it is. That's the point of losing it. Where did I leave that? You don't know. But when you leave something and you know you left it, when you walk out of the house and you know you left something there, you didn't lose it. You left it. And that, that is how our relationship with Christ is described in the Ephesian church. They left their first love. They knew what they were doing. Something comes in. Something creeps in. Something makes its way into the life whereby we begin to leave. Leave off that love that we affirmed to our God. And so, where do you have to get back, back to? You have to get back to the place of the altar. That's what verse 4 of chapter 13 says. He had to get to the place of the altar. Yes, beloved. Yes, yes. What was it you saw when you first believed? What did you see? You saw the bleeding lamb. You looked at Calvary's middle tree and you said, yes, yes, there's the Son of God dying for me. And it's there in the shadow of Calvary where you find the healing balm for sin. And where you see that your reconciliation of God is made for you in Christ. And you sit there and you don't just sit there and spend a few minutes and then leave. There's a part of you that wants to stay there. You want to stay in the shadow of the cross. You want to stay at Calvary and drink in all the loveliness of the crucified Lord Jesus. It's there where you see there's the answer for my sin, my backsliding. And yes, beloved, it's there you must return this morning. For if you have left, if you have left, if you have gone into Egypt, into the world, and you're looking at life pragmatically and making decisions based on your own understanding, and you're not walking in your friendship with God, you need to get back to the cross, back before Jesus Christ, where there He died for your sin, and there see afresh just a sight of the most incomprehensible expression of love the world has ever known. That's where Abraham had to get back to. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. But you know, these decisions that we make, they they haunt us. Sometimes they haunt us. We, we get away from the Lord, you see, and we live for a period of time in a land where we ought not to be, in a place where we have no business of being at all. And while we can get back to the cross and know the, the healing, forgiving stream of the shed blood of Christ, let us not forget that there are watching eyes and there are consequences There are often consequences when we leave our first love. Go down to verse 10 of chapter 13. Abram and Lot are being blessed materially by God to the extent that there's no room for them, apparently there's no room for them to stay together. And so there's strife and Abram makes this decision. He he said, look, let let there be no strife, verse 8. We're brethren. We we shouldn't be fighting. And so he says so graciously to 
to Lot. He says, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right, then I will go to the left. You know, at this point, you sort of, sort of wonder, Abraham, should you not have given the lad a little counsel here? But there's a point that grown men have to make their decisions. And so verse 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Like the land of Egypt. You know, that's not in there by chance. This is giving insight into the, the kind of rational process in Lot's mind. He has these herds. He wants to take care of them. And he looks to one part and he, he looks over there. He looks at all the plain of Jordan. And what does it remind him of? It reminds him of the well-watered plains of Egypt where the Nile would overflow its banks every year and water the land and the harvests would be enjoyed in abundance. And he thinks to himself, that looks just like Egypt. That really prosperous land, that's where I will go. But if he had never seen Egypt, perhaps he may not have had such a view of the land as he possessed. Abraham had brought Lot with him. Lot had gotten something into his eyes. Yes, parents, our, our children see things. And what they see leaves an impression that will make them or often cause them to make decisions sometimes that are not for the good. And where he is going is towards Sodom, verse 13, and the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And these problems occur, beloved, when we walk by sight, not by faith. And Abraham is learning. Abraham is, is back in fellowship with God, and he is learning not to walk by sight, but by faith. And again, look at the language. Look at the distinction of where they plan to be. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. Verse 14, the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, and so on and so forth. Ah, you see, you see. Lot, Lot, Lot is living by sight. He is making his, his decisions based on what he sees. And Abraham, in contrast, his eyes are fixing only on those things that the Lord says to look upon. He waits, he waits for the Lord. He waits for God's direction. And the Lord comes to him and says, here's where to look, Abraham. Be very careful in making your decisions. Why are you making them? Ah, you see, businesses may come to you and jobs may be offered to you and they'll, they'll put before you a huge big salary and you look at it. You look at it. Without, without communing with God, you look at it and you judge that's, that's what to follow. Follow the big salary. And off you go to the well-watered plains. But you're right beside Sodom and you're not beside, you're not neighbors with the most godly people you know. And you're on your own, surrounded by the unrighteous. And you don't have the strength to hold fast. The difference between living by sight and by faith changes the entire direction of your life. Lot had prosperity in his sight. Abraham had a promise. One lived for possessions, the other lived as a pilgrim. Yes, like Abraham, he was very rich, verse 2 tells us, in cattle and silver and gold, but if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Thirdly, his discipleship. Abraham, as we've noted, wasn't always perfect. He didn't always get it right. However, he was a friend of God. That's the general tenor of his life. And so you see this reflected in a number of ways. 
we can see it, first of all, that he rescued souls. As we think of his discipleship and how he reflected a discipleship spirit, he rescued souls. In Genesis chapter 14, we're told between, of a battle between four kings and, and five kings. And amidst this battle, these various kings, it comes into the area of Sodom, and Lot is taken up, captured, everyone with him, he is taken away. Genesis 14, verse 12, we are told, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Yes, now he's no longer outside Sodom, he's in Sodom. And he is taken, captured. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them on to Dan. Verse 16, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Amazing. Amazing. Here's this man, Abraham, minding his own business, living in life, carrying on, walking by faith, obeying the Lord. And then he gets news that his nephew has been taken captive. You could, you could see him thinking to himself, listen, <laughs> there, there, there are entire communities here Huge numbers of men. We're not given the size of it all, but they're these kings, these local kings, these regional kings that have come together to battle over this. I'm not getting involved. I mean, what can I do? What difference can I make? But Abraham was a man who discipled. He, he, ought to, he sought to disciple and be, be prepared. And, and he expresses here this heart that he has for souls. He is not content to look at the circumstances and respond in a fearful way, thinking there's nothing that can be done, I'll just pray for him. He actually goes after Lot. He endeavors to rescue the perishing. And he's got a little army, a little like Gideon's army, or just like the 120, rather, roughly 120, that are in the upper room. It's not much. I mean, what's it going to do to change the world? But God, God, God is with you. And God was with Abraham and with his men, and off they go. And it's a wonderful depiction of the church militant, the church on earth, fighting the Lord's battles, waging warfare against the enemy, having a heart even for one perishing soul. Oh, he could have looked at Lot and says, look, he's, he has gotten what he deserves. Perhaps it is found in family members far more than it is beyond our family, where we have the feeling that they get what they deserve. I have tried over and over and over again. And you give up on them. You give up. And what they get, they deserve. Well, what they get, they do deserve. Isn't it funny how we can feel like that more about family members than anyone else? We know their history. We don't know the history of the, the world out there and all the things that they have done. And so we pursue lost souls and we speak to them, those that we work with, our neighbors, others that we may come into contact with. We go after them. We don't know the whole past, and so we don't allow that to color our perspective. We just see them as lost, and we go after them, but we know our family. And we begin to judge they've crossed the line. We don't do that with others, certainly not as easily. But is that not the, the, the opposite spirit we should have? Should it not be that for our nearest and dearest, for our loved ones, we are even more merciful? That our hearts embrace the possibility that with God nothing is impossible? That we pursue them and pursue them and pursue them and keep going after them? And Abraham here, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes out to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's doing. And he goes after them with such heart. 
And the Lord gives him success. He rescued souls. Yes, and this, he shows the kind of discipleship that we can learn from. The kind of character that we ought to implement in our own lives and follow ourselves. But he also refused the world. He refused the world. Again, chapter 14, verse 21. He has known success. He has this interaction with Melchizedek. And then verse 21 tells us about the king of Sodom who comes to Abram and says, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. I don't want what you have to offer. He didn't want what the world could give. He wasn't interested in dealings with the world that would enrich his own life. Again, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Abraham is being particular here. He is not wanting to have any involvement that might tarnish the testimony of what God is doing in his life. So he runs from the world. He won't enter into the possibility of making such an exchange. And of course, here is the promise that comes in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You were right. I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. I am the one that makes you rich. I'll look after you. You don't need the riches of this world. Thirdly, he revealed the gospel. He revealed the gospel. Chapter 18, verse 19, a well-known text that I've referred to many times. Chapter 18, verse 19. Here you see him in his discipleship, very proactive with those under his care. God's testimony of Abraham is in chapter 18, verse 19, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. He was faithful and he had a testimony before God of being faithful in instructing those under his care. What a reminder to us all. For those of us who have those under our care, teachers, parents, grandparents, you have those under your care and you are to teach them. And so he, he endeavors to disciple them. The word command. He will command his children. In doing this, he is putting emphasis on the authority of the word, isn't he? Command his children. Not, not by his own authority. The command comes under God. He is, he, is, he is communicating as a prophet to their souls. Here's what God has said, and he commands it. You see, God's word's not up for debate. And our children need to understand that. They need to understand in our instruction that the Word of God is not up for discussion. They need to feel the weight of it. Beloved, this is why I preach in a way that is not conversational. The last thing I would want to communicate as we stand before you Lord's Day by Lord's Day is that this is just a little conversation going on. And we're here to discuss whether or not these things might be helpful to us in our lives. This is the living Word of God. It is God that speaks. It is God that has spoken. We are called to obey it completely and entirely by His grace. So He commands. Emphasis on the, the authority of the Word. Emphasis also on obedience to the Word. Keep the way. That's the whole point. Keep the way of the Lord. You have to obey. You must obey. And then also emphasis on the promises of God. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Yeah, there's promises too. Sweet promises that he gives to those under his care. He says, you are involved in these promises. You will receive them also by faith. Fourthly and finally, his devotion. His devotion. Time has gone for me, but I want you to flip quickly to chapter 22. And just briefly here, consider the devotion of this man. 
There are other passages that reflect the devotion of Abraham, but none like Genesis 22. After having waited for over 25 years for a son, Abraham has received that blessing and is now living in peace and prosperity. Life is good. And in Genesis 22, verse 1, we read, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Can you imagine? No, you can't. Can't even begin. You try, you try to, but you can't. God coming and saying, I want you to take the most precious thing in your life and sacrifice it. I want you to take the individual in whom are bound and will be fulfilled all my promises to you and sacrifice it. All that Abraham had lived for up to this point from the moment of his conversion, from the time of his deliverance, everything is culminating in Isaac. Everything revolves around Isaac. Everything's invested in Isaac. God says, Offer as a burnt offering. Verse 3 tells us, Abram rose up early in the morning. I don't imagine he got a lot of sleep. What was he thinking about that night? I think the answer is given to us in Hebrews 11. Turn over there, but keep a finger in Genesis 22. Hebrews 11. Verse 17. Why does he rise up early? Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting, determining, believing that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Accounting. Abraham lay that night, no doubt, in turmoil for a time. But when the sun arose, when it was determined it was morning, he did not delay for a second. Why? Faith propelled him to immediate obedience. Perhaps he went through the logic of it all, considering everything that God had said, all that had been fulfilled up to this point, all that he had been taught when his wife had laughed, when he himself had laughed, and all the subsequent challenges of of Hagar and everything else, everything that God, the whole whole path that Abraham had been on, he lies there in his bed, Processing God's command. By faith, by faith he can see, he can see that the only way, the only way this can end is God staying true to his word. Therefore, if my son must die, God will also raise him to life again. 
God had shown to his servant over these years, don't question me. And he had made mistakes. He had gone to Egypt. He had pretended his wife was a sister. He had gotten himself into all sorts of trouble. But he had learned through it all. Don't question God. He sees beyond the horizon you cannot see. He sees into the shadowy areas where the light of your perspective cannot enlighten. So he gets up early. Yes, that's what it says. He rose up early. He rose up early, yes. No point in hesitating. And off he goes. And so they come. It's just the Abraham and Isaac. Verse 6, Abram took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abram his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Oh yes, I know him. He will command his children. Isaac knows. Isaac's been taught the way to God. And he knows there must be a substitute. There must be bloodshed. But he does not yet realize that that blood at this point seems to be indicating that it's going to be his. And as he is about to stretch forth his hand, verse 10, to slay his son, the angel of the Lord calls unto him out of heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thy anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. When he lifts up his eyes, he sees the ram and offers it as a substitute. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. No, beloved, if you're given some plaque that you put in some position in your house that says Jehovah Jireh and your references to it are always relating to the material. And if your use of the word is when someone's in material straits and you say to them, Jehovah Jireh, oh, may the Lord wash your, your speech. Oh, it, it has a secondary. There's a secondary application. There is. Down the line. But Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh is the Lord will provide a substitute for sin. He's providing a way of reconciliation to God, the means of fellowship to be a friend of God. Jehovah Jireh, he wants, he wants us to be his friend. So he is Jehovah Jireh. The means by which a man is the friend of God is the shed blood. Time is gone. What a life. What a life well lived. As I said, when he got to the end of it, with all these promises, you know what he had? He had a place to bury the family. That's all. That's all the land he had. As I mused on that, I thought, what an indication of Christ's kingdom. When Christ came, there was just a little land in the heart of the world where the truth was. But as Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations, and as Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that, 
What is happening over the course since the death and resurrection of Christ is that that little piece of land is spreading and getting bigger and bigger and bigger as Christ gathers in individuals from all the four corners of the globe and extends it until his kingdom. There is no end. There's no limit. It envelops the entire world. Like Abraham, we're just pilgrims in the middle of that journey. And Christ will use us to extend his kingdom just as he used Abraham. May we learn what we ought from Abraham and have lives well lived. Let's bow together in prayer. Maybe there's one here and there's something in your life that's hindering you from obeying the Lord. Like Abraham's father is getting in the way. It's time for that. Whatever it is, a relationship, a hobby, a habit, it's time that it died. And you died to it. And that you went through with God. Lord, we pray, help us. By thy grace, amidst the weakness of our frail flesh, to walk by faith and not by sight. Grant that through Christ's sacrifice we would maintain fellowship and that it might be said of us that we are before God thy very friends. Make this congregation, every one of us, the friend of God. Lord, take away our love for sinning. Deliver us from those things that hinder and lead us into Egypt. Bring us back to the cross, the place of our first love. Hear prayer. Command blessings on thy word. In Jesus' name, amen.